Welcome to the RSP Cast Quick Game. We are in week number eight, joined always by the inimitable Mark Schofield. Mark, how are you? I'm doing well, buddy. I'm excited to be here. I'm always excited to catch up with you. These shows are always fun to do. I know we got a ton of topics to get to, so I'm excited about that as well. We got some listener questions, so should be a really fun show. Yeah, it really should. And you know what? Let's just start off with a listener question. We're not even going to do a, a football listener question to start off with. We're going to start with our buddy Michael Crawford um, and Abu Kari on Twitter does some really good work, and I'd, I'd follow him, especially if you're a Ravens fan or you're just a football fan of X's and O's. He just wants to know, what's your favorite thing to cook and or eat right now? That's a fascinating question. Um, I will say that being under, you know, somewhat of an interesting set of circumstances where everybody's home now. Uh, my wife is still working from home. The kids are doing virtual school. And um, it certainly made it difficult, in a sense, to, like, plan the meals the way I used to. You know, back when the kids were in school, the wife was in the office, I would literally sit down Sunday night. I would plan out the menu for the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Um, I would drop the kids at school Monday morning, go to the gym. And then as I was waiting for the all 22 to drop, even in the season, I'd go to the grocery store and get the ingredients and make everything. But now it's like completely different, upended. Um, but I will say that one thing that I keep coming back to that I actually just did last week, it was made spaghetti sauce from scratch um you know starts like noon time you start you you know you dice up the garlic you let it sit in the oil in the big pot as you start to get all the ingredients together so you infuse the garlic oil then it's an all-day process you get meatballs the sausage the brajoli all that stuff do it upright so that is still an old time tested standby for me See, I want to come to your house now because spaghetti, <laughs> spaghetti to me is like my ultimate comfort food. Oh and yeah, the way that you just, the way that you just described that, I'm yeah, I'm I'm showing up one day on an hour. There we go. You know, always or, welcome, my friend. We there we go. For me, I think the thing that I've been kind, of, I've always loved sushi. So mm. and and I really love just just yellowtail. Um, yellowtail is a is one of my favorite fishes. So. Um, you know, I found that over the past month, occasionally there's a not a bad sushi place around here. I know that sushi snobs would say, "Well, you live in Atlanta. How good right. can it actually be?" You know, but at the same time, um, it can be pretty good. So I, you know, I've lived on coasts. I know that what good sushi is, it can still be pretty good here. Um, so yeah, I like sushi. But I'd say the thing that I've been probably doing more often is with this everything the way it is this year and I haven't been able to cook as much um I've been doing a fair bit of juicing lately and 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 drinking juices and we'll we'll say that I've been on like kind of a a Dwight Schrute preference thing and and drinking beet juice you've been telling me about beets for a while because I remember we were living in our old house I was growing beets I told yeah. you I was going to ship you some. I just never did. We'll see beets. So it's been going on for a while. Yeah, beets are beets are good, man. Like I can't I can't have them every day, but every other day, you know, some you get a couple of beets, you get a you get a couple of lemons, a couple of apples, and then some carrots, some ginger, about a thumb size of ginger, um, and then some celery, and then maybe either you know whatever green you like, and and you juice all of that up and it's and the lemons take out the bitterness of the beet yeah. and take out the bitterness of the green and you get 
you get a really good juice. It's a it's a very good juice. Um, now, if you think that you know, now if you go to the men's room and you real and you think that you're bleeding, you know, yeah, that's a bit that's, of an eye that's, opener. The that's first a bit time of an eye opener occasionally. Yeah. If the you know, but you know that it'll be okay. Um, actually, yeah. it's great for blood pressure. It's great for a number of things. But uh, but uh, but yeah, I found that that's that's something that I've been. I've been having on a on a fairly regular basis over the past couple of weeks again. So yeah, so all right. <laughs> now that we got the food. now we get through the beat portion of the program. Exactly. Now we got through that. Let's talk a little bit about Antonio Brown. You know, he's got signed. You know, to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Chris Godwin with the finger injury. Mike Evans says he's eighty percent, um, which kind of what I suspected. I mean, he I don't know how anybody didn't think he wasn't like less than you know, less than healthy. What do you think about Antonio Brown's outlook, you know, and impact with this particular offense and Tom Brady? I mean, I think it's clear that Tom Brady really loves Antonio Brown. You know, the idea Bruce Arians came out and said, look, you know, Tom didn't have anything to do with this. Like, I think this is his second chance. I think Arians told like 17 lies in a three sentence (laughs) statement. It was stunning. Like saying he was, this was his second, this was Brown's second chance, which it's not. It's more than that. That Tom had nothing to do with it. Give me a break. Tom had everything to do with this. That Tom has no influence on decision making. Rob Gronkowski would probably beg to differ with that question. So come on, Bruce. Um, I think through that lens, you can see where Brown is going to get an opportunity and going to get targets because he played one game with Tom Brady. And Tom Brady wanted to throw the ball to him on every single snap. So I think provided Antonio Brown is on the field, he is going to get a lot of targets. It's that provided he is on the field part that is probably the big question because this is a man that now on his third team in two years now from the Raiders to the Patriots now to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, things could turn. I mean, things could honestly turn if he is on the field, he's going to get targets, and I would be would not be surprised if he sees the Lions share them. But it's that extra question mark that I think is kind of lingering in the back of everybody's mind. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I think that, um, you know, Drew Davenport of Football Guys, who's an attorney, who um, also an attorney, um, mm-hmm. talked a lot about, you know, that most likely that Antonio Brown is probably taking some medication, probably from a mental health perspective, probably getting some therapy. The fact that he's gotten eight game suspension, the fact that we haven't heard much from him really probably indicates that he's fairly compliant with what they've asked him to do, which is a good thing. And the fact that he got signed by a team is probably a good thing. And he's been working out with other with Russell Wilson and the like, you know, is has been a good thing as well. So, yeah. I'm looking at that. I think the provided is a as a fair question, but I'll say I think he's going to be a wide receiver one the rest of the way. And the reason being is that when you look at this team, I you know, obviously with the injuries we already mentioned, but the guy that I think that he's going to take over for if Godwin comes back and stays healthy, if Mike Evans gets healthier and continues to play, I think it's going to be a combo of what they wanted to get out of O.J. Howard in the red zone and Scott Miller. And if you look at Scott Miller's game, that's Antonio Brown written all over it. The deep shots, the, you know, the screen game, 
you're going to see a lot of those opportunities from that respect. And I had Tom Brady forecasted for 4,900 yards and 38 touchdowns this year. I thought this was going to be a huge season for him. And even with all the injuries, he's only 400 yards off that pace. And he's three touchdowns ahead of the touchdown yeah. pace. So yeah. I think that, you know, you look at and really, you, you know, the what was it like five catches for 85 yards and a touchdown with the with the Patriots in that one game? I have him averaging about five catches for 72 yards and and a touchdown per game. Like that's the average that yeah. I see for him. And if that if he hits that average, he's a top 12 receiver for the next seven games. Um, so I believe that he's going to have an impact uh, and unless playing football is deleterious to his mental health long, right. you know short term uh, I, I would there are people who might argue that it's been deleterious to his mental health now I mean I've already seen stuff talking about and had some um, readers kind of write to me who have this kind of expertise but I don't think they'd want to put it on the line for this, but have suggested and shown podcasts about talking about the hit that he took from Vontae's perfect. Right. And people wonder if, you know, if he's dealing with some sort of psychological issues as an outgrowth of getting, taking hits from football. And certainly there's been suggestions of that. And I think anybody who watches the game and is a fan of the game has to take that somewhat seriously, even if there's not, even if we can't scientifically um, validate it. You know, right. so, but, you know, with that in mind, he is playing, he's, and he's going to play. That's what I think he's going to do. So, no, I think that makes yeah. sense. I think that makes sense. Yeah. So, so Mark, what about the Steelers? You know, I, I watched them this week, um, past few weeks, you know, but I watched them this week against the Titans, pretty tough opponent. Um, it was a, it was a fun game to watch. Are they threatening to be the team to beat in the AFC? I think right now they're there. I think you can make a case that between what they can do defensively, the ways that they can both slow the run game, you know, you don't even necessarily have to stop the run game in today's NFL. Slow it down, which they can do. They can pressure the quarterback, which they can do. They have decent coverage players in the secondary. I think Megan Fitzpatrick is an emergent talent at the safety position. And then you look at what they can do on offense. They can run the football. I think they've been smart with Ben Roethlisberger. You look at his – time and snap to throw it's one of the quickest in the leagues they're doing a lot schematically where it's a lot of three by one looks where you got chase claypool or james washington on a single receiver side if he likes it throws it doesn't comes back to the three receiver side to throw the concept i think this is a very good football team right now and it's exciting to see you know the sort of final perhaps final act of roethlisberger's career what they've been able to do with him i know a lot of people are like killing him for that interception late in the game I thought that was a throw you make nine times out of nine if you're a quarterback. You get a wide receiver matched up on a linebacker in a middle of the field open look. You'll take that at any time. Linebacker made a great play. Um, so, yeah, I look back at the AFC right now. I think you have questions about Baltimore. I think you have questions about Tennessee. I think, you know, Kansas City is still obviously very good. But right now, yeah, Pittsburgh. Yeah, I think I'm with you. I think they're there. And I think, and I think the reasons you mentioned. I mean, in this defense, I mean, the pass rush that they can get and the level of coverage that they can achieve on top of that is yeah. really what makes this team. Because, I mean, T.J. Watt is just in a has become he's yeah. become an amazing player. You know, I mean, he was good out the gate, but I mean, some of the things that he can do are is just really fantastic. 
Um, you know, watching him handle like Mike Kelly and Derek Henry on a double team and and basically have a plan for them, even though it was you know Derek Henry who took Mar- you know took Kelly out you know on that particular player they took each other out the fact that he had a plan to like kind of redirect inside with a swim and then be able to reach Ryan Tannehill and nearly strip probably one of the most ball secure quarterbacks in the, in the AFC right. was pretty darn impressive and it's just you know and I love your point about the 3 by 1 set you know because one of the things that I was looking at too is that they just they're just playing this game right now it's like who on the which side of the field is giving the most space to a receiver, both vertically and horizontally? Yep. And how can we manipulate that a little bit more? And if we can, we're going to go to that, you know. And if we don't, then you know we'll go elsewhere. You know, we'll go to our second read. But like that first drive was literally just a clinic on going. Who has the most space? Who's leaving the most space for us? All right, quick target, quick throw, quick yep. throw. Probably like. Six out of the eight plays that they had were that simple of a of an idea when it when you distill it down to its essence. So yeah, I the Steelers to me are and the Steelers on top of that of all the teams they're just a tough football team. They're a hard yes. hitting physical team, and you need that in the playoffs. You need a you need a team that's resilient and tough. They're not always the smartest team. You know right. that's always been kind of their history is that. The joke is, is that they're kind of the bro team of the NFL. Um, you, you know, it's just kind of like, you know, not always, not always long on on team smarts, but you you know what you get out of them. But sometimes, you know, but you know, schematically they've been good. So I'm, and when you have enough um, players that make difficult, that give you difficult questions, um, you don't, you can be fairly simple with what you yeah. do. Because it's a, it becomes a pick your poison thing, so I mean I, I think that Kansas City is that way to a degree, you know. So that you can add now, you can take some of what Andy Reid does and some of the magic there, and and Eric Bieniemy, and mm-hmm. and and add on to that. But I think that at its core, it's about the players. Yeah. So let's go to the college game a little bit. Um, you know, I brought up Derek King once to, a couple of times to you in the past, just privately. Um. And I've watched him again, and there's certainly some things that I've seen a little bit more of him that I I can understand why um, he's not a top guy for sure. But I still think he's a compelling quarterback prospect in the realm of being a draftable quarterback. I'd like to either know what you think about his game, like or dislike about it. And if you haven't studied enough of him or, or don't really want to talk about him and talk about somebody else, as long as it isn't Trevor, Justin, or Trey, I'd like to hear about it. <laughs> no, I want to talk about King for a second. Um, okay. And I want to start with his right ear. And that's going to seem like a very strange place to start when you're talking about a quarterback. But if you watch King throw, you watch him move around the pocket, every throw is made from that right ear area on his body. It's such a quick, snappy release that it's Garoppolo-esque in a sense. You know, I just got done watching Jimmy Garoppolo carve up the New England Patriots, and I'm still not quite recovered from that game. But one of the beauties of Garoppolo when he's on is when he's decisive and knows where he's going with the football, that ball pops out of his hand, and the release and the throw motion is so compact that that release is so quick. Marino-esque in a sense. King has that. And it's probably not something that a lot of people are going to talk about, a lot of people are going to focus on, but that's where I'd start with him. 
because the ball comes out of him. Once he makes up his mind where he wants to go with the football, the ball is out in the blink of an eye. He has good velocity, shows a good understanding of leverage. And where people will probably start is, of course, the athleticism, right? Because he moves extremely well in the pocket. He's an explosive runner. He's a powerful runner, too. And people are going to look at that and think, oh, he could be Russell Wilson, in a sense, with the power, with the way he moves in the pocket. I'd start with him as a thrower. I've been impressed with him as a thrower this year. I think he's certainly not just draftable. I mean, I, I think he's a guy that's probably a day two pick in my mind. I think he's somebody that if you draft, you can craft an offense around him and be pretty happy with the results. So, yeah, I understand why you're buying in. I understand why other people will start buying in too. Yeah, and it's funny because watching him again, it's funny you talk about that release because it's like I've even seen him, and he does. He has a very quick release. I've even seen him alter the release a little bit where on plays where he needs to kind of give a little bit of a moonshot, he'll bring that ball further back. And, and behind his body a little bit and just kind of toss that up there. The one thing I don't like about him mechanically that worries me is he does take that little extra step where he can't step into the throw yeah. and he steps yeah. into that bucket and he can't get the velocity he needs. Um, on He can't access it all the time. But when he doesn't do that, it's there, you, you know? And and what I have seen that's impressive, and, and I'll have something more for that this week is him throwing into not only not only looking off the safety which we all talk about like yeah all the time but he he does a good job of looking off linebackers yeah like he 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 holds the linebackers and he'll even there's a nice play where i've seen him against florida state where he acknowledges where the safety's going holds the linebacker and i would even argue that he doesn't know where the safety might wind up so because he didn't hold him so he places the ball a little bit further inside a receiver just to make sure that he gives that receiver a safe catch opportunity. And then on top of it, he takes contact. Like he'll take yeah. hits in the pocket from big dudes to deliver accurate balls downfield. So yeah, I'm 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 a fan. I'm I'm not as when the first time I watched him at, at Houston, I was like, why is nobody talking about him as a quarterback? Like I was yeah. I was just kind of flabbergasted. And now I'm watching him and I'm kind of a little more like, okay, I understand why people weren't sky high on him. But at the same time, I still feel good about him as a player. I think what's also important about him is the C on his jersey. Yeah, I mean, a guy that's moved around and transferred a lot, but to still earn that, I think speaks well of him both as a leader and in a huddle. And I think yeah. that's big. Yeah, and it was interesting for me to read this week that on ESPN that – uh he was the guy who Kyle Trask was working behind at Florida. Yeah. And yeah. and that guys like Cliff Kingsbury were like, he's one of the top five quarterbacks out of high school. Like, yeah. no question, you know. So it, that's interesting. All right, so from the quarterbacks of the offense to the quarterbacks of the defense, or at least sometimes the quarterbacks of the defense, I'm looking at Tampa Bay's combination of Devin White and Levante David over the past several weeks. And it's just been so much fun to watch them as long as you're not a fan of the quarterbacks that they're facing. Because, man, they just, the double A gap pressure that they're getting is just fantastic. They blitz them off the edge. It's crazy. And then, like, the run stopping. I mean, they just literally just shut down Aaron Jones in, in yeah. that Packers game. It was fantastic to see. And then David Carr, I mean, I'm, I'm watching one play and De Derek Carr basically is about to break the pocket. He's two yards behind the line of scrimmage, you know, and you have Devin White who's 
eight yards behind the line, eight yards downfield. And Devin White makes that eight yards up before Derek Carr can even cross the cross the, the, the line. And it's like unbelievably quick players. So how do you stop or beat Tampa's linebacker combination? I think two defensive coordinators in the league right now deserve a ton of credit for what they've done with their personnel. And look, Todd Bowles in Tampa Bay is certainly one of them. You look at that game against the Packers, he was doing a lot of just mean stuff. One four six, one five five. Well, your one down defensive lineman is Nadomic and Sue head up on a center. And then you've got White and David and athletes all over the field. And he's doing a lot of those radar looks where you've got just Sue up the zero technique and then everybody else is in a two-point stance. You don't know who's coming or going. And you're just in trouble. There, there was one play where, you know, I, I think Rogers slid the protection one way, and the blitz, of course, came from the other side. And he just didn't. He just did not have a prayer. He, they are forcing you to guess right now. Another defensive coordinator that's doing that is out in Arizona. You know, we saw it yes. on Sunday night, right? Where fantastic. they baited, they baited Russell Wilson into throwing a pick to Isaiah Simmons, which is incredible. But Vance Joseph. He's using a lot of similar sub packages. 065 is one of them. You don't have a single defensive lineman on the field. You've got six linebackers if you count Isaiah Simmons as a linebacker and five defensive backs. You put all those guys on the line of scrimmage, that radar lineman, you don't know who's coming or going. You might slide the protection to one side. You get caught by the blitz. You might think they're all coming and go max protection. They all drop out, which is what happened on the Simmons interception. So both of those defensive coordinators are doing a great job. I think what you might have to do, you might have to be willing to run the football up those fronts. Yeah, You might have to be willing to say, okay, if you're going to go 0-6-5 as Vance Joseph or one five five with Todd Bowles, you have to be willing to say, okay, fine, we're going to run at this. And we're going to make you decide. Are we going to stay in that and let these linebackers and athletic defenders wreak havoc on us? Or are we going to just say, okay, we can't stop this now. We're going to have to bring some bigger guys onto the field. I think that might be what you have to do. But those two defensive coordinators, man, they have done some great work so far this year. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic point. And it's and I love the scheme breakdown there because, yeah, and it's difficult because what they're doing is they're creating these – they're doing this in passing situations and known passing situations. So it's not like they're doing this play in and play out, right. you know. So – and when you and the key is having a guy like Indomitian Sue who can occupy two, three guys for right, you and and still hold up the line. Because that's just it. You might run at that look, and Sue's not gonna let your guards get to White. He's not gonna let your guards get to Levante David. He's gonna keep them clean. I saw on Twitter, I think it was Mike Renner. I think it was with somebody at PF that talked about how clean White and David have been kept this year. Yeah. Guys can't get to the second level. And it starts with guys up front like Ndamukong and Sue. Yeah. So, I mean, at the end of the day, what the, what this means to me is that if Tampa Bay gets to the Super Bowl, then I'd like it for me to have a fun just matchup in theory. I'd like Tennessee Titans to get to the Super Bowl with Mike Vrabel and his – his slick little deal, you know, fantastic. Yeah. Because you have, because also you have just smart defense. They're not the best defense by any stretch of the imagination, but the Titans are a smart defense. Like they play and they play smart in the back end. 
you know, most of the time, I would say. And they don't have the best matchup one-on-one, but they can play zone and they can trick you. And yeah. then and then just Derrick Henry and that offensive line with Tannehill, who's just like turned into just, you know, I'd like to kind of audible this one and just talk yeah. about Ryan Tannehill because I liked him coming out of college. And then, you know, I thought he was a pocket, a really good pocket player really smart player in certain areas and then just really naive and kind of foolish in others. And, you know, it seemed like things were going to go okay, but then he kind of got the Baker Mayfield treatment, which was multiple coaches, dysfunctional yeah. system. Um, and then, by the, but he was also still close to being a top 12 producer, you know, at his position, despite all of that, unlike Mayfield. Um, and, then, you know, he ends up getting injured and he ends up getting bent, you know, ends up moving on. But like, I love to see where Ryan Tannehill is right now. Like to me, he looks like he's having fun. He's playing smart football. He's a, you know, he's like, to me, what the Minnesota Vikings wish Kirk Cousins was. That's, I, I couldn't have said it better and I couldn't have made a better comparison because those these are two quarterbacks and Cousins and Tannehill that you could call sort of bakers, right? Follow the recipe, go down on the line. But Tannehill is so quick with his decisions as opposed to where Cousins is still at this point in his career hesitated on throws that are NFL open. And every time Kirk Cousins comes up now, I think of that story about Jay Gruden where he talked about it, it came out where he was like, Kurt, it's not going to get more open than this. Like, this is NFL open. you got to make this throw. And Kurt was still like, ah, no, no. He's like, Tom Cruise and Top Gun, where after Goose died, where he's like, no, no, I don't like this look. I'm not taking the shot. It's like, this is NFL Open, kid. Like, yeah. you got to pull the trigger here. And so Tannehill doesn't have that hesitancy. He doesn't. He will come out of those play action figs, back to the defense, comes up, and he's fired. And that's how you have to run that kind of offense because, you know, it's designed to get guys out of position and to take advantage of that. Well, if you come out of the fake and hesitate – Guys are going to react. Guys are quick enough to get back into those throwing lanes and take them away. So you have to be decisive. Tannehill is. It's great to see. And I love watching him and Arthur Smith's offense. Yeah, it's been fun. And Tannehill's always struck me kind of personality-wise as that kid. Like in, when you play backyard football, he's that kid who's like, pick me, pick me. And everyone ignores him. And then you wish you hadn't. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's like... Yeah. You know, he ends up like second to last or third to last because you know who the last person is that you pick, you, yep. you know, in your in your neighborhood. But like he's the new kid who's like over eager. So like nobody wants to pick him because you think you think he probably isn't all that good. And then it tur- he turns out to be a lot better than what you thought. Absolutely. All right. So moving on to <laughs> another quarterback. Does Dandy Dalton and the Cowboys offense even have a chance in hell of succeeding with this offensive line? I don't think so. I absolutely, I just don't think so. Um, you know, and you could say that you know, the past couple of weeks, you've run into two pretty good defenses, right? With Arizona, with the defense that we just talked about, with Washington that can get after you, like if there's a strength with the Washington football team, it's their defensive front, their way to pressure you. But I don't see this getting fixed, you know? And I know it's silly season, it's trade deadline season, but when you're hearing rumblings that they might move on from Everson Griffin, you know, I actually wrote this week in USA Today that I don't think that the Cowboys should necessarily be sellers right now, but I don't think they're buyers either. 
I think if you're Jerry Jones, you have to realize that, yes, the NFC East is woeful, but you're not going to win that division. You're just you're not right now. You lost Dak Prescott. It's time to punt on the season and get ready for 2021. That starts with get a long-term deal done with Dak and then figure it out everything else. I don't think they can be successful right now. Yeah, I agree with you. And it makes me wonder, and I want to follow up with you on this and get your thoughts on it. But when I watch this, I know that there's a lot more going on, such as some of the supposedly rumors in the locker room with Jane Slater's report about you know, that the coaches don't know what they're doing and they're not teachers, that this is a mess. And then just watching on the field. I mean, like after I saw that, heard about that report, you know, I'm watching the game and I'm hearing the sideline reporter talk about it. And so I go look it up and then I watch the game and it's like, I'm literally watching a horror movie. I mean, it was like, that was, it was unbelievable how bad this team played on, you know, all around drop passes, tip passes, you know, nobody covering the back end on a blitz, not knowing your assignments. It it looked like a team that was completely unprepared and wasn't taught, you know, yep. on one end, you know, or just just stopped caring and, you know, to the point that they weren't ready. And so I know there's a part of that that could just be what's going on with the coaching staff, what's going on with the tenor of the team and the team just kind of, you know, the coaches losing the team and possibly that being it. But I have to think, too, I mean, you look at this offensive line and how bad it was, it really does make Dak Prescott look pretty darn good when you think about what yeah. he was able to do to keep these games close. And, you know, I just wonder for you, how much of this is Dak Prescott being gone? I think a lot of it is. I mean, and I'll come to it this way. What we're seeing right now in New England it's proof that Tom Brady masked many manners of sin on both sides of the ball. Yeah. And you're seeing that right now in Dallas because, you know, they still have talent. Look, you're talking about a three wide receiver trio of Gallup, Cooper, and Lamb. That's arguably as good as it gets in the league. Yes. Even with his fumble issues, Ezekiel Elliott is still a very good running back. And they can't get out of their own way. But they were still competitive with Dak Prescott sort of willed them into games and masked over some sins. So, yeah, I think absolutely. This speaks to the value of Dak Prescott. Yeah, it's leadership. Leadership yeah. leadership, and holding people accountable. Because okay. if you have a great leader and you, and you don't take crap from anybody and you hold them accountable on the field, you reinforce the message that the coaches are trying to send. You're bad... You know, because again, this is why I say that the quarterback is the operations manager of an of an offense, of a team. They get stuff done. Because I I know I've seen environments where, you know, executive leadership sucks. Like they can walk around in an environment where no one's getting bonuses and want to show pictures of the yacht that they bought. You yep. know, at you know, like just a a, a week ago. You know, and or just completely do make awful decisions where the, the the team will work six, eight months to do a lot of research and then they'll decide on something that was like completely off the wall, an emotional based decision that was awful. But you can but still you can have someone who runs the team in the in terms of what's going on on the ground, on the front lines, and still execute it. And even if like even if you even if you can criticize all the different aspects of it, 
they're still competing and still salvaging what could be an absolute disaster because of the fact that when people get, you know, when players look up at the coaches and go, wow, let's just say, let's just, let's just pretend that the, the rumors are true. And the, and the players are in the locker room and going, Mike, Mike, Mar you know, McCarthy's an idiot. These guys yep. are idiots. We don't even know what the hell we're supposed to be doing. And we can't go out and say anything about it because, you know, that's not our ethos as a, as in team football. We've been taught since, you know, middle school that this is right. not how you go about doing things. So, you know, your, your quarterback's probably like, look, don't play for these idiots. They're going to be gone. And, you know, Jerry will probably fire him in two years anyway. Yep. He'll be gone. Don't play for this. Don't play for that. Play for us. Play for me. Play for what... Play for your family. Play for, you know, they're the ones that are going to get in their face and say, don't you want to have any pride about right. what you do? We can win this game. If you do this, I can make this happen. And it take and it's those play-to-play -play moments that matter. It's not that big picture thing. Oftentimes you're on the field and it's like something goes wrong and CeeDee Lamb drops a ball he shouldn't and Dak Prescott looks at him and goes, man, you're better than that. You're right. better than that. Make that catch because if you make that catch on this next drive, we're going to score. I'm going to make sure we score on that drive. And they're thinking about the next score. They're not thinking about two games, three games, four games right. down the line, you know. And if they and then if they score and then they're they're in the game and then they win that game, then they have the belief they can win the next game and then the next game. And it's like that's the kind of thing that happens that when you have a guy like Andy Dalton who has no chance in hell because he's not athletic enough to handle that that mess of an offensive line he's just going to sit there and smile after the after he gets hit and yeah. it's a smile of pain you know right. like you know and the team looks at that and they're like we're in trouble let me ask you this okay. i've seen people go both ways on this moment i have my own thoughts but i'm curious yours when dalton got hit by bostick on that brutal hit should the team around Dalton have reacted adversely and made a huge thing of that or not? Because I've seen people on both sides. I have my opinion, which I'm going to share in a second, but I'm curious about yours because I'm curious. I, I watched that and I was in absolute shock. But see, I I grew up on AFC <laughs> Central, AFC North football. If that happened, I don't care who that happened to. If that happened to like Paul McDonald back in the day when who was like a you know a USC backup for Brian Sipe, if you, you probably haven't even heard of any of those guys, if he got his head taken <laughs> off, if he got yeah, if he got he got his head taken, if somebody got, I don't know. All I know is that on my teams the, the, and what I grew up watching football, you do that and there's a fight. There's yeah. going to be more than one person kicked yeah. off that field because you we, need to let that other team know that they are not doing that again. And yeah. if they're going to, because we're going to impose our own rules, forget the zebras. Yeah. I don't care. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. we're in absolute agreement there. I've seen yeah. some other people that we both know and love have a different opinion on it. And, and that's fine. But from where I sit, and I remember it was a Cowboys Niners game. I believe where Young scrambled for a touchdown. Oh, it was Cowboys Bears, and Young got lit up, and it was an instant fight. Yeah. Like you were coming to the defense of your quarterback. Yeah. I see that, and I see. I understand that some of the offensive line went to help Dalton up. You see a moment like that, you it, it's on. Like yeah. the switch is oh. flipped. Like we're not going to let that stand against Washington right. of all teams. You're yeah. the Cowboys against Washington. Like yeah, like to me. 
to so me, when I saw that, yeah. I was like, this locker room, something's wrong. Yeah, something's awful, like, to yeah. me with that. And I, I'm totally, and again, you know, listen, I'll put it to you this way in parenting terms, okay? Like, we teach our kids not to fight. Fighting's wrong. Bullying people is wrong. You know, absolutely. all those things, absolutely correct. But at the same time, you know, and I wrote about this a long time ago, but I'll bring it up again. My my daughter, I remember one time she was about six or seven years old and she came home from, yeah, it was first grade, came home from first grade. And she was like, what if someone's picking on you? And, you know, what do you do about that? And they're like trying to fight you. And I'm like, well, you know, the first thing you probably want to do is go tell the teacher, you know, and, and let the teacher handle it. She's like, well, what if the teacher's, what if the teacher doesn't listen? Okay, well, go find someone else to talk to if you can. I mean, where is this? Like on the playground, like on recess. Okay, so yeah, go find another teacher. Well, what if I can't find a teacher because it's like there's a group of kids and one of them's like trying to stop me from going over there or something like that? What if I'm like further away? What if this, you know, it was kind of what if me into a corner? And I was kind of a new parent back then, you know, you know, and this, you know, this was, this is my kid now, but you know, this was, you know, this wasn't my kid by blood. So I'm still, you know, I'm in my early, you know, late twenties, early thirties and thinking, okay, I'm about to get in trouble with my, with my, uh, with my significant other here, but I'm going to do it. So I said, well, this is what you do. I said, you hit and punch and kick that kid until they're on the ground and they can't get back up. And then you go tell a teacher. And if that's what you do and you get in trouble for that, um, you're not going to be in trouble at home. Now, if you do that just because you don't like the kid or because there's no real good reason other than that they were trying to hurt you, then you're going to be in a lot of trouble here. You know, and I thought the next day, I thought the next day my kid was going to get in a fight. I literally thought she was going to get in a fight. Didn't get in a fight. Weeks go by, months go by, nothing. I forget all about this that I told her. Years go by. Now it's like sixth grade. I get a call at work. (laughs) And it's the principal. And the principal's like, "Um, your daughter got into a fight and she beat up this guy. And I was like, she beat up a guy. Okay, so um, let 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 me call home and find out what happened. And she's like, okay, and I'll call you back. So I call up at home and I hear the story and she basically did everything I asked. There was a, the teacher was out of the the room because there was a problem out in the hallways. Um, This boy started picking on her. She couldn't get, she went to go outside to tell the teacher. Teacher was like, I'm busy handling this. You're gonna have to go back inside. I'll try and take care of it later. He kept threatening her and he was physically threatening her. So she beat the crap out of him and they had to pull her off of him. (laughs) And and so, you know, and when all of that was over, you know, the, the, they were going to, they were going to suspend her for a week. And then I explained what happened, you know, in the, from what her point of view, I said, can you talk to the teacher and confirm to the teacher that this is what the teacher was dealing with and what was going on, that she didn't have control over classroom due to circumstances beyond her control. And, and then that a male was harassing my daughter, you know, physically harassing my daughter in that. And I said, if so, she defended herself. And I'll tell you, I told her exactly what to do with that. I said, you know, when I last told her to do that, she's like, when I said first grade, I said, so, so when she comes home, she's got, we're, I'm taking her out for pizza and we're, and, um, I'm, 
I'm going to make sure she understands, just see where she's at. Because I want to right. hear her say, finding's wrong, you know, but at the same time, I want her to feel like she has pride in that she could defend herself and that she did what she was supposed to do um, in all of this. And sure enough, you know, listening to her, she was like part proud because the boys and who always get in trouble at the school were like, don't mess with her because they saw what she did to them, to, to the kid. And then, um, I mean, she didn't hurt him bad, but, you know. Um, and at the same time, she felt kind of ashamed that she got in trouble and that she also like had to beat up somebody. And and at the same time, she felt proud, you know, she, she it was like a, a, a number of different emotions. So to me, I look at this as a team. This is part of your family. You know, this yeah. is your work family. And someone just went outside the, the scope of, of the rules. And there is a part of, uh, to me, it's like, yeah, I understand that we're probably going to get in trouble, but you need to show that you're there to defend your teammate. And I, and I totally agree with, with you on that. And I just yeah. think it's insane that the Dallas Cowboys did not come to the aid of a, their quarterback against Washington. Like, right. like Cleveland Browns fans or Cincinnati Bengals fans even would probably like riot their city if yep. their team didn't yeah, do, if at least do that. If that happened to Joe Burrow and the rest of the Bengals sort of stood around, like Bengals fans would take the field. Yeah. Like take the field. Yeah. I mean, say they with Browns fans if it happened to Baker. So, yeah, a Tom Landry is rolling over in his grave right now. Yeah, yeah. That's just – I'm glad we touched on that. I'm so glad you brought that up because that it's I, been bugging me all week <laughs> and I wrote about it. But like I said, there are people that we know and love that are on the other side of it said, look, that's just bravado male talk. Like, I don't know, man, your quarterback gets lit up. You come to his defense, especially if it's Washington, Dallas. I, I don't know. I've had, I've had these, I don't know. I've had these conversations. I mean, to me, it's just like, it is you. You come. It, it isn't bravado to me. Like you got to feel like you can protect the yep. people that are on the field. And sometimes the rules don't do a good job of protecting that. Yep. I know we want to believe we live in a lawful society, and <laughs> <laughs> I know we do. And and I know we don't want to have a vigilante kind of system no, when it don't. comes to things. What? But I I'll just tell you this. I told my son this. I told my son. You know he he. When he was, he, he pushed his mom once he, you know, when he was like eight or nine years old and he had, and I'll, I'll just say it cause I don't really care at this point. He had a, he had a, he had a family figure who was abusive to them. And, and so when they came to my household, there were some issues we had to straighten out cause they, they saw things that they shouldn't have seen. And I, um, and I, I sat him in a room and I said, listen, I'm like, if somebody, if somebody hurts you, if somebody hurts you or adult tries to hurt you, the, the police are going to have to pull me off their body. Yeah. Okay. If, if someone, you know, if you, and cause I love you and I care about you and I'm, and that's how I feel about you and your family. And that's how that works. If you do that to another family member, you're no longer family, you know, cause you're going to get older and you're going to get bigger. And he's, He's grown man now with two kids who is like an absolute sweetheart of a man, like who's also who also served time doing in, in Mosul, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, who's who's, you know, who's had to kill people. But he's yeah. also like 
on, on, he's turned into an unbelievably well-adjusted human being who I'm incredibly proud of. But I remember having that conversation with him and saying, if you got to protect your sister and you, and the women in your family, not that they can't defend themselves and they're not capable of that, but it, it's the same with me or them or anybody else. And I'm just telling you, if you, if you get physical with one of them, especially because you're going to be bigger than them, you know, in that way at some point, yeah. um, they're going to, the police are going to have to pull me off of you. Yeah. And, and you know, like I, you know, and it was like, it's just an understanding. And some people don't like to hear that. They don't like to, they, you know, there's this whole politically correct society about how things go. And certainly I understand, um, you know, you want to be reasonable. You don't want to be abusive to anybody um, in any way, shape or form, verbally or physically. Um, but there is a point where you have to be protective. Yeah. And it just, it, it boggles my mind. And there's sometimes that we got to teach that a little bit. And I think these are lessons that you can kind of have conversations with your kids. Now it's how nuanced they can be is a different thing. So I'm not recommending you use this football as a lessons, I guess, for, for life or for everything. Cause I don't know where you are at re- listener, who you are at home and what your deal is, but you know, I just gave a couple for myself in terms of yeah. what were my own thing. And I'm, you know, I'm not an abusive guy and I don't recommend fighting, but right. I do. But there are instances where you have to teach your kids where there's a line so that they know yeah. how to protect themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Tua, it's the Tua, Tua era. I cannot believe that they did this, but like it was funny because I think you were on the the... You were on the round table when we were in football, guys, and I said, end of season, you know, who would you rather have, Tua or Daniel Jones? And you were like, well, considering that Tua hasn't been named a starter, <laughs> and you were right, you know, like, but I was kind of playing at that. Not that I thought Tua was going to get named. I mean, that's not at all what I figured, but I just thought at some point he might. Um, but the, here we are a week later, and Tua is now the starter, which is just kind of nutty how well the Dolphins have been playing, but what's the outlook here? I mean, first of all, uh, sort of a macro view of it. I think this is a good thing to see from Miami because it tells me that before this season started, they had a plan that if Tua was cleared to go, they were going to start him after their bye week. No matter how the season was going, we're going to make the switch then if he's medically cleared to go. Because when this decision was announced, my immediate thought was they're three and three. They're in second place in the AFC East. Ryan Fitzpatrick is playing well. Why are we making this switch now? It tells me that they didn't panic as an organization. They didn't suddenly take the plan, rip it up, and say, nope, forget it. We're going all in on this year, which gives me good thoughts about Tua's development and how they're going to handle it because they realize that Tua is the future of this organization if they handle it right and if they do the right and smart things around him. So in that sense, I think this is great for his development. As far as like the present, I think obviously you're going to see more RPO stuff. You're going to see more of the Alabama type offense that he was running last year with Steve Sarkeesian, glance routes, decisions at the line of scrimmage, isolate some guys, some one read concepts to put them in familiar footing. And I think they'll use his athleticism, not that Fitzpatrick isn't an athlete, but two is more of an athlete. They'll they'll use that as well. You saw it on the two throws that he had. One of them was a boot action play where he's rolling to his left. And so I think that's what you see in the short term. But I think on the bigger picture scale, once I sort of pieced it all together, it gave me a good feeling about how they're going to handle him for the next three, four, five years. Yeah, I love it. I love it how this has gone. And you can tell that, 
while Fitzpatrick is probably clearly disappointed that he's yeah. not in the thick of this um, discussion, you could tell that he and Tua have a relationship. Like they right. have a good relationship. Um, so I think that the mentorship that he's going to get from Fitzpatrick is probably has probably been invaluable compared to other quarterbacks who haven't had that. Um, and yeah, I agree. I think that you're going to see a lot of boot action out of him, one side of the field, isolations. You're going to see a, a little bit more off script work from Tua that will be successful from the standpoint. And it's going to be hit or miss. I'll put it that yeah. way. You're going to have big plays and you're going to have big mistakes. And because he's one of those guys that you get him off his spot and he doesn't get outside the pocket and he has to stay in and kind of back up or or make a move, he tends to sail that ball when that happens if he's not completely there but if he can get outside the pocket and flush and get his feet under him and throw now you're talking so yeah i'm excited about this i think it gives a little bit of boost to guys like preston williams and to um you know and some other players who can run after the catch and who will be able to make quick work and in, in plays maybe jakeem grant would be an interesting guy just to monitor just to right. see what he can be because i don't know how much of a of a wide receiver he really is as much as he is as uh, maybe a new orleans wide receiver that's how i'd put him like jakeem grant to me is like a perfect new orleans wide receiver like deontay harris marquez callaway yeah you know um traquan smith all those guys who you just kind of like get out you know sit in a spot catch the ball run across the field, catch the ball. Hopefully you can run after the catch. You're like, that's yep. what Grant is. But that might work out in this situation. I think so. So, Baker Mayfield, is this false hope or is this something worth hoping for? You know, I watched Baker on Sunday. Um, there were some things to like in terms of the pocket movement at times. There were some throws he made. The touchdown to Njoku I thought was one of the better throws I've seen from him. He had a couple of other throws where he showed you a good understanding of leverage. Um, you saw some of the influence of Stefanski's offense. But at the same time, it's the Cincinnati Bengals. You know, he's had two good games now against the Cincinnati Bengals. And I do think, in a sense, there's a bit more false hope here than anything else because look, we know where Baker is as a quarterback. You know, we know what his struggles are. We know what – Cleveland has to do to get enough out of him to be competitive this year. Play actions, Stefanski's offense, positive game script scenarios, all that kinds of things. And I think that speaks to the situation and the question they probably face long-term. So I think might this be a bit of false hope? Yeah. Might this be enough to keep them competitive this year? Yeah. Is it going to be enough to buy in on Baker for the next five years? I'm not so sure. Yeah. And this is the part of the conversation in this podcast that if you're like doing lawn work and you were worried about – making more noise or you're in the car and you got to step out for a minute to the convenience store. And you've already heard, you know how I, what I think about Baker Mayfield, the next two minutes, you can go ahead and do all that and I'll still be talking and we'll be wrapping this up, which is basically that, yeah, there, this is false hope. It's been false hope because Baker Mayfield didn't show anything new. Uh, He showed one thing new, which was that he was a little quicker on a red zone read and he climbed the pocket once on an incomplete pass where he like tentatively kind of climbed one step and then threw the ball, which was a baby step that I liked. It needs to happen. But I saw that baby step earlier in the year, you know, and again, when you watch the Bengals coverage, I was like, I I couldn't believe some of these plays. There were three touchdowns that 
literally you're looking and going, where's the safety? Like, why is right. he playing there? Or the linebacker fell down, you know, trying to run and, 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 and work to the flat to cover Kareem Hunt. I mean, like these were plays where that were clear Cincinnati mistakes, blown coverages that like, yes, quarterbacks are supposed to take advantage of that. And he did what he was supposed to do. He made some nice throws in the final drive, but yeah, leading, reading leverage, that's great that he did that. But I'm kind of like, we're still at the stage of like, well, he he did his ABCs right. He did his one, two, threes right. You, you know, but we're still not completely talking in complete sentences and being able to like write the essay that he needs to be able to, you know, it's just, it, to, to me, I just look at this and it's like, until he faces good teams that can get pressure and cover, as my buddy Eric Stoner would say, Baker and has said to me the last week, Baker Mayfield, whenever he's playing Georgia in the Rose Bowl in the second half, um, he's that's when he's bad, you know. Yeah. And it's like he's still playing like he's playing Georgia in the Rose Bowl in the second half. Tight man coverage, good athletes, pressure that you can get with just four or five, and his game falters. And in, and until he can overcome that, he's still the guy that I look at and go, he's overrated and and. I just think this is false hope and I would like to see Case Keenum in there because I actually think that as inconsistent as Keenum can be and maybe less physically talented than Mayfield, his veteran skills I think will be better. And I and I hate to say this, but this is the thing also. I tend to notice that the quarterbacks who failed, Paxton Lynch, you, you know, is one of them, uh, other players, when they, Johnny Manziel, when you yep. don't work for a season, you know, Will Greer is another one. When you don't work and you're not prepared for at least one of the off seasons that you should be and you get, you get caught, it's over. Like, yep. and, and Will Greer got caught year one. He admitted last this past summer that he wasn't working and being prepared as the number two quarterback. And I think he cost himself a career um, yep. to be a starter, a chance to be a starter. Paxton Lynch played more video games than he did, you know, actually working. Um, and that cost him his career. Baker Mayfield admitted the summer, the year two, I didn't work as hard as I should have. That's, you know what? You're a coach killer when you do yeah. that. And, and to me, it's like, I don't know how you can, they're giving him one more shot. But to me, that, ex, that says a lot, you know, and I personally would love nothing more than to see an SNL skit that shows Baker Mayfield getting evicted from his progressive house. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I if we have know, any writers that are listening to this podcast, I, I, if you are, I would like, I would help. I would, I would not take a fee. I don't even need credit. I just, I just would like to see a scene where basically they come and they repo his car. They like put a foreclosure notice out on the, on, in the stadium. His wife's like, you know, freaking out over, you know, her furniture getting moved out of the house and, you know, him having to move into an apartment somewhere because that's what I'd like to see at this stage as a Cleveland Browns fan. I'm, I'm, I don't have false hope. And I think that there's a little, still a little bit of mass delusion going on with that. There you go. So who's the worst defense, Houston, Cincinnati, or Dallas? And, and uh, I guess a better follow-up question is what's the best way to exploit each of them? I mean, easy answer in the second question. Just snap the ball. <laughs> I mean, honestly. No, I mean, I, I think out of the three, 
I think Houston yeah. or Dallas, one of the two Texas teams, those Dallas defenses are bad. Cincinnati, interestingly enough, they had a great game plan against Lamar Jackson a couple of weeks ago where they showed some pressure looks. They switched things up. They made him think. I, I liked it. So out of those three, I'd say the two Texas teams are the worst. Um, I, I, I would say, you know, in terms of giving a nod or an edge to one of those as to which is the worst of the two, I'd say Houston. Uh, they, they can't cover right now. They can't get after the quarterback right now. Um, I feel bad for Deshaun Watson because I don't know if you've watched Watson in the past couple of weeks. He's played some of the best football of his career. Yeah. Like he's playing at a really high level. And we talked earlier, and I would, this is a movement that I'm trying to instill in people. Manipulation that matters. Because you joked about it. We've joked about it. All oh, freezing the free safety with your eyes and then throw it a vertical rider along the sideline when the guy's not going to get there. That doesn't matter. But moving linebackers, that matters. Watch Watson in empty formations move underneath linebackers out of where they're supposed to be and then throw it away they should be. It's a thing of beauty. I love him in empty formations. So, yeah, I think of the two. I think Houston. They, Devontae Adams, man, he was just getting free releases against press coverage, which boggled my mind. Yeah. So, yeah, Houston. Yeah. And for all these three teams, though, just – Whatever you're running, you're probably going to be okay. Yeah, I would agree. And and really, the the Packers put on a clinic with Houston with how they spread the field or used yeah. three-by-ones and yeah. made Houston try and honor the run to the point where you'd have these coverage looks where it's like Devonta Adams only had to like use like a jab step to the outside to reinforce outside shade coverage with like yeah. no safety over the yeah. – one safety over the top, and he's playing on the opposite side of the field. It was like insane. So yeah. – yeah, and then on top of it, just watching Houston's run defense like pretty much the entire season. Zach Cunningham. Zach Cunningham. Oh, oh my God. I don't know what's happened to him, but like literally he jumps out of he like takes the bait on every move that a running back gives at the edge of a hole and literally give he's get, that play that he gave up to Derrick Henry, he gave oh. that up to Clyde Edwards Hilaire in the opener. Like he's yep. done that multiple times this year. Uh, I, it's just been awful to watch them. I, I feel bad for that. Yeah, so, all right. Matt Bowen posted something that I thought was pretty interesting because he gave a report this week on Twitter, Josh Allen versus the New York Jets. Saw zone coverage plus late movement disguised defensive trend versus Buffalo right now. And that Allen hit the underneath windows and scheme concept. Allen stayed on his number one read too long at times and he's staring, starting to bail from the pocket and the vertical pass game's missing. Is this plus pressure his fatal flaw right now? Um and this was something I noted a couple weeks ago because we were, you know, I think I was talking to um, Dwayne McFarland and saying, you know, people are wanting to apologize for their takes, their thoughts on Josh Allen after the you know beginning of the season. I'm going, when's he faced zone coverage with a team that can actually get pressure on him with like their front four? When that happens, I'll be ready to say he's advanced as a quarterback to a level that we should really be talking about him as an MVP. He's playing good football right now. He's improved. There's no doubt about that. But to like, but to me, I mean, the the zone coverage thing was real. Like that's a real issue. Is like once they face zone and once they force him to like move around the pocket versus zone, I just had questions about how good he'd be. Have you watched him lately? And what are you thinking about that? About Matt's comments. I think Matt's comments, I think your comments are exactly right. I think what we've seen in the past couple of weeks, you look at, you know, what Kansas City did, you look at what Tennessee did, 
they showed him some zone coverage looks and made him think. You know, it's not like he was, you know, he was playing really good football at the start of the year. A lot of it was against man coverage. And he was throwing, you know, crossing routes with touch, with placement, with arm talent, with trajectory. Some of the boxes that he didn't check when he was coming out of Wyoming, which had people thinking, oh, well, wild development. This is great to watch. And I was impressed with a lot of his anticipation throws. But now he's having to do it against his own coverage and you're seeing him struggle. And this is, you know, what you might have to do against younger quarterbacks. You make them think a little bit. And that's seeming to be his kryptonite because that plus a little bit of pressure if you can pressure him play zone coverage behind it take away his first read make him think with the football you're going to force him into some mistakes so yeah i think you're you're you and matt bowen absolutely 100 right about josh allen right now all right so this time we're going to do one where we we each just kind of take a question on our own we got some reader questions here listener questions felix wants to know about zach wilson what the hell and so <laughs> So, Mark, I haven't watched Zach Wilson I, yet. What can you tell me? I I, I was with um, our dear listener there for a second at the start where I was like, what the hell? I, I can't buy into Zach Wilson. I, I saw Mike Renner, the great Mike Renner, PFF, put up a video about why he's making it into the first-round conversation. It was a YOLO throw on the move, and I was like, nah, this isn't a first-round quarterback. But then I spent some time last weekend watching him. And I don't want to go Mahomes – but there's a reason why the Mah- the Mormon Mahomes moniker <laughs> is starting to float around different Oh, quarters. no. Wow. Because he had some throws in his game this past weekend. He had like a 65-yard vertical route throw that was just a ridiculous flick of the wrist. And like many, I saw that. My, that's where my mind went. Now, I've also seen Mormon Manziel which has a different sort of connotation, but Wilson has been fun to watch and we've seen quarterbacks rise. I don't think he's a complete quarterback where you would say, yeah, we're seeing a burrow type rise here. Mac Jones at Alabama, however, he Uh might be having a burrow type rise because he is making some reads and throws right now against leverage against man against zone where I'm just like, it, it, you know, we're moving kids up the top of the to do watch list here. Mac Jones is in that category. But Wilson's been fun to watch. Certainly has athleticism and arm talent. I'm starting to buy in. I don't know if I'd say first round. But, yeah, if he's coming out, I think a day two pick is certainly within discussion. Nice, nice. Well, Jacob wants to know, why isn't Daryl Henderson used more in the passing game? And what do we think of him and Cam Akers and their outlooks next year? So I'll answer this one, and I'll just say, listen, you know, Malcolm Brown can pass protect. Malcolm Brown also gives you that versatility where he's very quick and big enough to break tackles. So you're looking at someone who's reliable. They know what they can get from him in the passing game. And, you know, Daryl Henderson has that skill to work downfield as a, as a receiver, but maybe not as good of a pass protector. So what you get with Daryl Henderson is more of a schemed guy where it's like, yeah, let's let him run some of these, you know, bullet routes and wheel routes down the field and screen game stuff. But the screen game has been awful with the Rams in the sense that I've been joking like weekly that 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 McVeigh has basically overused the screen game. And it's like it's like listening to Christopher Walken, you know, go, we need more cowbell. You know, I mean, it's like literally been that bad. Like against the Bills and the Giants, it was at ridiculous levels where it's like, well, that screen works. So let's try it again. After that, it failed like five times, you know, prior to the one time it worked. 
Um, so I think that's part of it is that Henderson's more of a, a shot type of player, shot receiver, as opposed to and a screen receiver and not much of a pass protector. And then when it comes to long-term, you think of him and Cam Akers and their outlooks next year. Well, I think Daryl Henderson has pretty much sealed his opportunity to be either the lead back or the lead scat back in this offense. And if he improves his pass protection, he could wind up the lead back in this group and continue. And he still has an opportunity to improve his game. So he could become an all-around player. I think he's the most promising one. Cam Akers, by virtue of draft capital, will probably continue to get another year, another opportunity, kind of in the way that Devontae Booker got another year in Denver, or another two years. And and John Elway even foolishly changed the offensive blocking schemes and ignored C.J. Anderson, um, which I just love because any chance I get to pick on John Elway for, you know, influencing a team wrongly, I just love. So that, uh, you know, I wonder if Cam Akers will get that treatment. But Akers could easily improve if he learns to really understand the nuances of zone running like he still runs it a little bit more he's like a guy who's not completely lost on zone running but can but still runs it a little bit more like a gap runner does you know it's like it's like someone who doesn't speak english as a first language and has a but uses verb tenses and word choices in their native language um and it, and it comes across that way. That's kind of how Cam Akers is approaching zone um, zone running. So I think Akers has the most to prove. So you could see a scenario. Worst case for Cam Akers would be Daryl Henderson locks us down, and then they find another back to replace Akers because Akers isn't cutting it. Best case is that Akers comes on like a house of fire, really learns the zone scheme, and and at worst forces for Darryl, or best for Daryl Henderson forces a split and renders Henderson just a true scat back and Akers becomes the main man. So that's the dynamic there. Very cool. Cool. All right. So moving forward, as we round the turn here, we have our second to last question, which is where does football media deserve the criticism levied at it? Oh, man. How much time do we have here? <laughs> um, I, I think, look, I, I think we're recording this. It is Tuesday afternoon. Today's October 27th. And yesterday, in the build-up to the Rams-Bears game, you had a an analytics-minded writer from ESPN double down on the idea that Aaron, Rock, Aaron Donald is a bad run defender. And in support thereof, had a bunch of video clips that highlighted just how good of a run defender that Aaron Donald is. I mean, that's what I saw. And I know that's what most of football film Twitter saw because what then happened was inevitably all of football film Twitter combining to dunk on this person. And I think that episode encapsulates so much of what's wrong with football media. And so much of what's wrong with basically our generic societal discussions these days, we all live to dunk on somebody else. Like that's it, you know, and uncle chaps over at Barstool who has had an incredible life experience wrote this like last year, either at Barstool or on Twitter or on one of his podcasts, but that's what we live for on Twitter is just to dunk on people. 
we're not really looking for a free flowing exchange of ideas. We're waiting for somebody that we may or may not even like to say something dumb and then we're going to dunk on them. And I think that's where a lot of football media goes south is because it's easy to do that. And it might feel good in the moment to do that. It's much harder to see something and then sit down and either write a reasoned article in response to it or to just send them a private message and say, hey, saw what you wrote there. Here's why I disagree. That doesn't move the needle for people. It's much easier to clown somebody and reap the retweets and the new follows that come from that. And I think in an essence, in some ways, while Twitter is good, Twitter is awful. And I've said that before on this show. And this is just another example of it. And I'm as guilty as everybody else because when that happened, I instantly pulled out my photos of the Winnie the Pooh meme and I made a little screenshot Pooh meme of it and dunked on it because I was like everybody else. But it probably, I would have been better served doing what I did the last time this argument came out, which was to write an article highlighted why Aaron Donald is doing exactly what the Los Angeles Rams pay him to do and he's very good at it. And does that mean on some occasions he takes himself far too upfield and runs ahead of an outside zone play and Christian McCaffrey can cut behind him like one of the plays that was highlighted by this writer? Yeah. But it also means that on another play, he's going to run himself right into the mesh point and destroy your world. And if he swings and misses a couple of times by doing that, the Rams are okay with that because every once in a while he's going to connect and he's going to hit a home run for your defense. So I think that's part of what's wrong with football media is like every other subset of football Twitter, of, of Twitter period, we just it's easier to dunk than to reason and debate. I think that was an incredible point, Mark. And, you know, and, and it's also, you know, good of you to note where you're like, hey, like we're all vulnerable to yeah. it. We're all vulnerable to the behavior now. And you're not excusing yourself for it just no, because no, because just, this is yeah. everybody's. Yeah. I mean, it's you know, it's funny, like I I recently contacted Nick Whalen because he used to write for us and I we had a disagreement about Jonathan Taylor you know in a sense not knowingly we disagreed we just we had different points you know and people were bringing up some of Nick's work and we ended up doing a podcast instead just talking about some of the stuff um but you know it's interesting because you look at Twitter and Twitter is not just for the younger generation but I would say that Twitter inadvertent in some ways um, intentionally and often unintentionally is created for and geared and rewards immature response, yeah. you know, and that's, so I, I think that's brilliant. I haven't read, um, I haven't read that article that, um, I can't, I don't know why I've lost his name. I mean, I know him well, but like from Barstool, um, Uncle Chaps, yeah. yeah, Uncle Chaps, you know, I always tell Uncle Chaps draft guide, but uh, yeah. but you know, I mean, you know, so it's best draft guide. It's the there. best draft guide out there. But uh, but yeah, I I think that he makes a great point about that. I'll take it a different direction, and say, I think that there are a lot of good beat writers out there, but from what I notice when I go to events, that. There are a lot of beat writers who are just about making connections mm -hmm. rather than learning the game. Like they haven't bothered to learn the game. They just want to like they they see themselves as reporters, 
but they haven't advanced their skills and they've become complacent so as a result they just they, they ask questions that are that are more clickbaitish that yeah. don't really inf infuse a level of understanding they don't go to a higher level it's like they get what works what works is you know listening to rumor or rumors or asking confrontational questions or asking questions to get a reaction on some level and and then as a result there are times that when they do that they look stupid as hell like or they just look like honestly like i'll just yeah i'll just say it fat white people on third base like you you know yeah. we had a conversation you know on third base who who are who don't understand they're on third base you know, like they, yeah. they don't get, you know, and there, I'm sure there are challenges to being a beat writer for absolutely sure in this industry, but it's just like, I'd like to see some of these people learn, the, learn the game and ask game questions about the game. And I know that, you know, that may not serve, like try to elevate the, elevate the discourse. Yeah. And, I, I think that's kind of the point we're both making. Yeah. Like elevate the discourse, whether you're a beat writer and you think your job is to just get scoops. Well, part of your audience wants that, not all of it. And if you're somebody like me that spent a lot of time on Twitter and you see something you disagree with, don't do what I did and others did the other day and just dunk on something. Use it as a way to advance the conversation. Say, okay, this was the argument advanced. This is how I view it. Because at the end of it, we're talking about a game, yeah. you know? We're talking about a sport. It's filled with gray areas. And a lot of the stuff, those of us even that have a modicum of knowledge about this game, we don't know everything. Yeah. Like I just did a video on, on Cam Newton, right? Obviously, there are issues with that New England passing game. There was an interception he threw on a pass intended for Julian Edelman. And a lot of people are trying to say it's definitively this guy's fault or definitively this guy's fault. And I had the Patriots playbook in front of me. And I can't tell you who's running the right route or who's making the right read because we just don't know because like every other play in the National Football League, there are so many different options where it could have been three different things that Julian Edelman was asked to do, and I just don't know. Yeah. That's and that's just, that's just it. So, you know, none of us know everything. Yeah. And so even if you think you might be dunking on somebody and you're completely in the right, you might not be completely in the right. Yeah. No, I think that's a, it's an excellent, excellent point. And, um, you know, I, I think it comes down to that from a business perspective, maybe we maybe it would be nice for leadership in certain organizations to take the chance. And I know that it's hard to do, but take the chance on giving people what they think people actually need as opposed to what they think people want. Um, right. yeah. Because, you know, sometimes the best products are often what often evolve from someone saying, I'm not doing what everyone says people want. I'm doing what I think is going to be good. I'm going yep. to do what I think that people don't know that they need this yet. They don't know that they want this yet. I wish we could see more of that, but maybe in this environment, in this, in this society right now and the way things are, that may be too naive for that to actually occur. But yeah. But I it's exactly right. It's a wish I'm throwing down the well anyway. Yeah. So, all right. So let's end this. What's the best traveling experience you've had? 
Um, those of you that are watching this on video, and maybe Matt, you've probably seen this in the past couple of minutes, I've been furiously doing something on my computer. And it's because I was trying to make sure I got everything that I'm going to talk about exactly right. 2009, my family, my mom and my dad, my brother and the woman he was dating at the time, myself and my wife, we went to London for a week in 2009. And like we did things like we saw Stone Edge, we saw Churchill's World War II bunkers, we did Buckingham Palace, we did so many great things. And that was just a fantastic week of my life. I'm going to talk about two trips. This is the first one. Yeah. We stayed at a hotel that is now apparently the Hard Rock Cafe. It wasn't at the time. It was this more like European type hotel, literally across the street from Marble Arch Station. It's right on Great Cumberland Place. And... You know, being, you know, without kids, married without kids and, you know, my brother, the woman he was dating at the time, they were a young couple as well. We wanted to do stuff at night. And so the first night, jet lagged, whatever, we still were like, we're going to go out, we're going to find a place to drink. And so we walked across a back alley of old Quebec Street into city of Quebec. And it was this little pub type place. But we noticed, interestingly enough, it was still open when other pubs were closing down. And after going there for like two nights, it sort of started to dawn on us that City of Quebec is, as it is described on Yelp, a quiet gay pub with traditional Victorian decor and entertainment in its basement club bar. It was an LGBTQ bar. It was a gay pub. And we had the best time, the time of our lives there every single night. The people were so friendly, men, women, just the most wonderful people in the world to talk to. We would go there every night. We would talk about American politics, American sports, whatever. And we just had every single night, night in, night out, just a fantastic time there. But that entire week, including City of Quebec, that, that you know, gay pub, fantastic time. So that was one. The other was when I was a kid, my brother was a kid. It was a summer, I think, when I was maybe like 13 or 14. My mom's a teacher. My dad took a month off. We piled into a two-door Toyota Celica and drove from Boston, Massachusetts, out to Cody, Wyoming and back. We basically did almost a cross-country trip for three weeks in a two-door Toyota Celica. It may have stunted my growth <laughs> because I swear to God, man, I was piled into this tiny car. My knees killed me every single day. But we saw things like Dodge City, Kansas. We saw Yellowstone. You know, Yellowstone. We saw you know Mount Rushmore, the Badlands. We saw parts of the country that I may never see again, and. You know, when COVID hit and we were sort of forced to like lock down and not travel and things like that, you know, one of the things that bugged me about it was usually each summer on the 4th of July, we drive to the Chicago area. Last year, we actually did Ohio instead, but we drive through like the upper Northwest and I mean, the upper Midwest. And I love that. I, I love stumbling into a random town in like Indiana or finding some random strip mall in like, you know, Illinois or something or Ohio or discovering like a children's museum in, in Youngstown, Ohio and seeing stuff like that. So, you know, I was disappointed we get, didn't get to do that, but those two trips, the London trip and driving cross country and seeing parts of this country that I'll probably never see again. Those are two of my favorites. I love it. I absolutely love it. That's, that's awesome. And it's funny. We have a similar experience with one of those because the first trip I'll mention is, is the one that's come closest to the second trip. And is pretty much tied because I look at it as different life experiences and different lifetimes, you know. And my most recent lifetime trip was my 50th birthday. My wife surprised me and planned a trip to New York. 
and right. and so I got you know for me my Lambeau Field you know Yankee Stadium those places to me are like certain jazz clubs in New York so just before the pandemic shut everything down and before it became like a, a real thing and there was a ship off the off the coast of New Jersey where they yeah. had some people there we were in New York my wife took me there in February and um which was supposed to be a surprise but knowing my schedule with the rookie scouting portfolio she was like um I've got to let you know we're we're taking a trip in New York um for your birthday or we're taking a trip on your birthday and you're going to need to be available this time and so and she's like you're just never going to guess what it is and I was like I'm thinking I, I knew what this had to be because it's like these were bucket list things for me. And I knew my wife knew what the bucket list was. And I was like, she's like, do you want to, I said, do you want me to guess? She's like, yeah. Cause you're not going to guess. And I'm like, you're going to take me to New York and we're going to eat lots of great food and, and like go to, go to these great jazz clubs that I wanted to go to. And she was pissed at me, but like, <laughs> <laughs> but we had a, it was a great time. We stayed, you know, we stayed in the, the lower East side in a nice little hotel. And then we went to places like Atera, which is an, a Michelin, a Michelin, star restaurant two michelin star restaurant that was a fantastic experience and then we went to um marcus samuelson's restaurant in harlem and we went to katz's deli which was a you know which was you know if you're if you grew up in a in a jewish family and and you know that that's a yankee stadium moment right there and then we went to like the village vanguard and um the blue note and birdland and checked out some great acts and just really had a fantastic time and what my wife did for me on that was just an unforgettable experience and that was you know as to me that was like a refined adult experience like just one that probably the best that i've had from a traveling perspective and then the one that it's that it's equal to but from a different lifetime ago is when i was 23 years old my childhood friend jeff who he and I were friends, were best friends growing up, probably from the time we were like 10 until like we lost contact through adulthood, but um, later in adulthood. But um, just before he went to medical school and I was um, just moved, transferred to Georgia, we decided to take, um, plan a trip pretty much across the United States. And we, we saved money. We convinced his parents to let us use their um mazda mpv van and we literally um drove across the united states for a little more than a than 30 days and we like we would sleep in the van we'd drive you know we'd sleep in the van for two to three four nights out of the week and then we'd like and camp out at different places at, at all the national parks and then we'd hit a city clean up, have a nice few meals, see some sites for a couple of days, and then just go out. And so we saw all the national parks out west, not all of them, but a ton of them, walked to the bottom of the Grand Canyon and stayed there. Um, we did, you know, Yosemite. We we were at Crater Lake National Park up in Oregon. Drove all the way up Highway 1, which was just one of the most beautiful drives that you can possibly imagine. Um, and... You know, it was it was so much fun because you're to be able to do that in your early 20s and yeah. to be kind of like just the adventures that you can have doing that. And you don't really have anything, you know, you kind of feel invincible 
anyway at that age and you're with someone you've known your entire childhood um and and you get to have that type of experience it's something that i will never forget and is absolutely one of the if you get a chance to see this country and to drive around people are friendly for the most part you know in this country it gives you some perspective about this country that way and how this country really is several countries. Just yeah. the way, just the way people from other countries describe it, they're right. This is like several countries connected together by government. And mm-hmm. if we could recognize that fact, I think that we're several different countries connected. We're all very different, and but have some and recognize that and honor those differences. I think we'd be a lot better off. And and maybe that should be like a, you know, it. it in a, in a perfect world, it would be a requirement to make people travel this country who live I in this country. could not agree with that more. I mean, I, I think there's so much that this country has to offer. There's so much that you can see. I mean, I, I, look, I understand the desire to travel. You know, I think people should travel internationally, too. I think people should travel generally as much as you can. I mean, because yeah. there's so much out there. But, you know, I think seeing this country and the like you said, you know, it is. 10 or 11 or 12 different nations kind of grouped together. There's a great book, Colin Woodward, American Nations, a history of the 11 rival regional cultures of North America that basically carves up the country into different regional cultures. Um, It's a fascinating read. And I think seeing those like traveling through the South is something that I did a lot growing up. Georgia, Charleston, Savannah. I mean, seeing parts of this country that, you know, people might not think about whether you have to see Mississippi, yeah. uh, uh, Vicksburg, for example. Um, even when we get to go to Mobile for the Senior Bowl, it's good to see that part of the country. So, yeah, traveling around this country, I think, is something everybody should do. I will tell a funny story at the end of this because my friend and I, like, because we slept in this van, we had multiple cases where we, like, missed some weird, crazy thing that could have really gone bad. Like, just dumb luck, like, repeatedly. Because... Here we are, you know, we're a couple of 23-year-olds, you know, and just think about what you did at 23, and uh, I'll just leave it at that. But, like, we would, we would after we'd be in a city, we would, you know, we'd drive hours at a time. So oftentimes, like, when we got out west at the national parks, a lot of these national parks are near prisons. So twice or three times, I think, three times, we literally were camped out in our car when someone had escaped prison and had like there was a manhunt hunt going out for them and one of them was in grand canyon and it was like infamous because apparently this escape murderer got out and we arrived at the grand canyon and literally parked at the overlook like at about one o'clock two o'clock in the morning and just slept in the car like i'm literally like feet up on the dashboard i was driving my friends got his seat back i got my seat back i wake up and there's like a busload of German and, and Japanese tourists who are taking pictures of the, the the rim, the South Rim and, and all that. And that's fine. And I'm saying to my friend, well, my dad and I once walked down to the bottom of the you know Grand Canyon like six, seven years before. And it was unbelievable. But usually you have to reserve like a year in advance to stay at the ranch down there. Phantom Ranch is the name of the ranch. And it's a long hike. But, you know, we were fit enough to do it. So we were like, let's see if there's any last minute cancellations. Because I doubt it, but if we can do it, it's worth staying an extra day to walk down the canyon and stay there. So the ranger's like, yeah, we happen to have a whole slew of cancellations. 
Well, we didn't know that this like escaped murderer had like was roaming around the canyon, literally carjacking people and hiding out from a police manhunt. Oh my god! And like we walked down to the canyon and walked out and didn't find out until like three days later that that all that was going on. And then on top of it, like a helicopter crashed in the canyon. We left. We we I was in one, and then we like left. Um, we left L.A. just in just before a massive earthquake hit. And literally, I would like I call I'd call my parents and like be like in San Francisco. And they're like, "Well, where are you?" I'm like in San Francisco. Well, you okay? And I'm like, "You were in L.A." And I'm like, "Yeah." Did you? You know, are you okay? I'm like, what are you talking about? And I'd look down and there used to be these things called newspapers with right. like boxes. And I'd look down at the newspaper box, earthquake, a massive earthquake in LA, you know, like <laughs> literally like the, and, and the last one, I think we literally were like in, um, uh, where the rainforest is uh, just north of Seattle, Olympic park, Olympic national park, right. beautiful place camped out on this, like literally off highway one, literally just pulled my car off the road near the beach um, that was out there and we just slept out there in the car. And then I drive like five miles North and there's literally a sign about an escape prisoner out of a, secu- uh, out of a prison there. Um, you know, so we were laughing cause we like narrowly averted like crazy stuff, like oh all along the way things that as a parent now, I think, yeah, that would just yeah. be, that would just be awesome to know that about with my kids. So. Right. <laughs> so like Dak, you know, we're making like Dak Prescott. We narrowly averted disaster in our youth, yep. you know, hopefully he'll narrowly avert it and be able to, uh, you know, kind of right the ship and we'll send the best out to him. And, and to all of you who are out there, we hope you enjoyed this show. You know, please write and view on, on iTunes. We always like that. Please follow Mark Schofield at Mark Schofield. I don't really have to beg you to do that. I expect you to do that. I mean, really, why would I beg you to, to follow something that's for your own good? So, you know, please follow him. Check out the fantastic work he does on football. You can find me at Matt Waldman and at MattWaldmanRSP.com. And you guys have a fantastic week. <laughs>